my experience of gambling taught me to understand that the wealth and prestige that I grew to possess had very little to do with my talent, right? So I didn't gain wisdom by standing on the shoulders of giants. I gained wisdom by surfing the crowd. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. David Walsh contains multitudes. Australia's most successful professional gambler, he built and stocked Australia's most successful museum, Mona and Hobart. His autobiography, Bone of Fact, jumps from Bayes' theorem to bullfighting and includes an extensive discussion of his vegetarianism, atheism and past lovers. But for an autodidact, David's also surprisingly self-effacing. In reply to someone who tells him that Mona is the world's greatest museum, he demurs that it's not even the, great, the greatest museum starting with M. And he places a strong emphasis on luck, which is what led, him to ask me to, led me to ask him to launch my book, The Luck of Politics, in Hobart in 2015. I think he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met, and I hope that by the end of this conversation, you'll think so too. David, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Hopefully by the end of this conversation, I will have disabused you with the notion that I'm the mo one of the most interesting people you've ever met. <laughs> so and not only is my museum not one of the, the, well, the best in the world that starts with the letter M, also I'm probably not the most successful gambler in Australia. <laughs> Or at least I'm not the most successful Australian gambler. And I know that to be so because the enterprise that I set up, I have 28% and there's another guy that has 29 Arguably, he's doing better than me. Even so, that, so, is that, so that's your friend uh, Zotko? That is correct. Who you think is a, a better gambler than you? No, I think he's a more successful gambler than me. <laughs> ah, okay. Uh, what makes him more successful? He's got a bigger share. Okay. He gets, he gets, I mean... Uh, what makes him more successful? Success is only slightly correlated with talent, you know. Uh, and he had some capital when I had the germ of an idea. Actually, I had the germ of several ideas, one of which turned out to be okay. But um, capital buys rates of return that are not congruent with the value of labour, as economists are well aware. <laughs> and he had the capital and I didn't, so he gets a bigger share. Hence the success. Hence. Well, I mean, I'm, so, measure, I'm measuring success in, a, in the way that most interviews... Yeah, you might be circumscribing a different philosophy than simply outcomes, but I, you know, I, the most successful gambler in Australia might be someone that loses a few bucks every Friday but, you know, enjoys that particular passion immensely. 
but many would use the yardstick of dollars. So now, and I did. Now, now I would normally start an interview by talking about uh, someone's childhood, but uh, I understand from a comment I've read from Kirsha that uh, uh, what most relaxes you is talking about numbers. So I thought we would. I'm, uh, I'm pretty happy to talk about my childhood. We'd, uh, well, Alex, I, I'm skeptical about it having, and in general, I'm skeptical about analyses that say, okay, this turned out okay for you. What's the the wellspring of it? I you know. I think the genesis of most of us is randomness. So I guess Kish is on the ball there. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about my childhood. I'm happy to talk about numbers. So when you ask people to pick a number between one and ten, a surprising number of them choose seven. Why seven? Well, they won't choose an even number, most likely. And they... Because you phrased it the way you did, they're probably going to eliminate one and ten because you would have to be much more... Def- like, it, it is not certain that that was included in your categorisation, right? They'll, they're trying to be random, so they'll eliminate three and nine because they seem too, um, too stylistically located, like they're, they're not, they don't feel like they're random. Uh, they won't pick five. Can you tell me why they won't pick five? They won't pick five... Because it seems non-random because of the symmetry, right? Because we use, you know, base 10, mm. 5. They try to choose something that... And all, there are another bunch of components. They try to choose inadvertently, try to choose primes, because numbers that have factors seem less random or numbers that have obvious factors, you know. And small numbers, you typically know that whether they're prime or not. So... Seven results. It's, I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. You obviously do. What is the percentage? My understanding is in some studies it's up to half. That, yeah, uh, I, I, I would have gone... I would uh, have thought it would be... I suspect you would get uh, even more men choosing seven than women hmm. because women are... And interestingly enough, and I'll throw this in because, you know, there are people out there that are chasing a million dollars on a two million to one event because they have a non-linear utility value function so they buy a lottery ticket. If you buy a lottery ticket and you do what everyone else does, you'll do things like choosing birthdays, which means that there's a preponderance of numbers smaller than 12 and then a preponderance of numbers between 1 and 31 for obvious reasons. So you should choose a few numbers that are greater than 31 because then when you do get a dividend, you'll get a better dividend than you would have gotten had you chose birthdays because they can't be birthdays. But interestingly enough, if you choose all numbers bigger than 31, that doesn't pay very well either because there are a few people that are aware that numbers bigger than 31 are good. So what you've got to do is choose a few birthdays and a few larger numbers. But we're just not very good at, um, at being random number engines. In fact... Um, I think it might have been Poincaré did some analysis of uh, roulette numbers at Monte Carlo from... But reporters were um, making them up. So they, the roulette numbers from Monte Carlo used to be printed in the newspaper and reporters were not doing their job and making them up. When he did the analysis, he found that they were extremely non-random because humans... And, like, and he's essentially inventing mm. the science of this sort of analysis... 
and humans are just terrible at generating random numbers. And this is the kind of imperfection that you're exploiting be, then? Computers will always beat... I'll get back to that. Computers will always beat humans at, you know, paper... Uh, what's it called? Paper... Rock, scissors. paper, scissors. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Rock, paper, scissors. Because computers can be random, but humans can't. So, you know... In fact, they take the one... that If they had a loser last time, they're way less likely to take it than they were before. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted your question. I was just asking if uh, this is the sort of uh, imperfection that uh, that you're uh, exploiting in order to get an edge on uh, in, in gambling, isn't it? Yeah, so in general... Um, so... Casino games, in particular blackjack, depends on the fact that cards have a memory. Once you take them out of the deck, the remaining cards are not random, right? So that's not particularly sophisticated. More interesting is horse racing because... We've done a lot of analysis in horse racing, like more than 30 years now. It took me years before I was able to generate a model that was more accurate than the public, which incidentally is a rousing endorsement of a form of democracy. It turns out it doesn't matter how much analysis you do, it doesn't matter how sophisticated, you know, how much you know about regression and logistic regression, and you end up with a model that's inferior to the public unless you include the public as one or more factors in the model. Mm. So what happens is what you end up with if you're actually going to win is a perturbation model. That is, I'm gesturing, which is probably useless, that assumes that uh, the public is right and then finds the sort of biases that they introduce based on the sort of things that in the psychology literature are called cognitive biases, the sort of things... I'll give you an example, hot hand bias. There's a belief... If you watch basketball these days, everyone does, that someone that's shooting, a, you know, had a great three-point percentage through the game is more likely to shoot a three-pointer than he was or she was before. Mm. But in fact, the lifetime average is the predictor of the next outcome, not... Right? But that was a very useful... Hot-hand bias is foraging behaviour. If you go back to where you found food... In, your, in our ancestral environment, it was useful. In fact, bees do it too. It's, it's built, built into our evolutionary history. So it was once useful, this cognitive bias, this mental shortcut. Mm. But now, in certain applications, it leads us to misadventure. So we get the odds mostly right, but when there's been a particular sequence, a jockey's won a bunch of races, we might think that it's more likely to win the next race. That he's more likely to win the next race. So we overweight the last race in considering... We overweight trends. In fact, yeah. in the stock market, we underweight trends. But typically... And I can explain that if anyone's interested. But typically... That's just one of hundreds of them. Mm. The most interesting one, and you'd know about this from your economic background, is what's called hyperbolic discounting. Hyperbolic discounting... If I said to you, and this wouldn't work on you, but, but if it was an amount of money that was going to make a difference to you and I said, I'll give you $100 today or $200 tomorrow, you would almost always say, I'll wait a day. Hang on, I've got this wrong, haven't I? Do you know? Uh, There's yeah. a special feature about today, today to $100, $100 today or $101 tomorrow, yeah. you'll take the 100 today. 
But if I defer them both a year, one a year and one a year and a yeah, day, yeah. you'll take the 101 because you've only got to wait a day longer, right? Yeah. And, and the hyperbolic discounting is such that it doesn't seem relevant, right? But we know that that, that bias is not cognitively sound, well, not, not cognitively sound if you're using utility, uh, linear utility, because in one year it'll be exactly the same outcome, right? Exactly. right? But, yeah, hyperbolic discounting is very real and... Uh, Bets in the far future behave in different ways. So people that take bets like having to pick four winners behave differently than if they had the opportunity. For example, if they've taken three winners, they're much more likely to take a long shot than they would have been if they had to pick the outcome of this event. And in general, they assert long shot biases. People prefer to... If you back a favourite in a horse race, you might lose 2 or 3%. If you back a long shot you might lose 50% or 40%. That's preferred and arguably it's preferred for two reasons. One is boasting rights. If you happen to get a winner, mm. it's very useful. And I believe that plays a big part because men ex exert this bias more than women and women certainly seem to need less boasting rights. And the other one is the thing I talked about before, nonlinear utility. $100 might be worth a lot more than 200 times the dollar to you because the dollar has no purchasing or no apparent purchasing value. But $100 does. Which is why the long shot bias goes up in the last race of the day, right? But it goes up. No. It used to. Ah, it doesn't, doesn't It doesn't anymore because um, because of people like us, presumably. Yeah. Or because people like us have taught the public. So what might be happening well, this is... This in the stock market, isn't it? Yeah, what might be happening is we're forcing inefficient players out of the market, right? So some of the other things I've seen uh, you talk about uh, bankroll exploiting are the... Uh, General punters' uh, tendency to overweight the amount of weight that the horse is carrying and, and underweight that, that's the quality of the jockey. In Australia, that is a real feature of horse racing because um, there was a gambling guru, Don Scott, who based his system around weight. It was published extensively and a lot of people incorporated this ideal into their behaviour. He was himself wrong about it as a feature. It was never as relevant as he thought it was. Mm. But, but once you once you sort of misdirect the wisdom of the crowd, they're all overplaying this to yeah. the extent that um, yeah. But this this feature, as far as I know, doesn't exist in many markets. We I, we don't tend to isolate out features to know, but some of them are so obvious. Like you get huge negative coefficients on weight if you include the public. You get huge positive coefficients on weight if you don't include the public, meaning that weight is relevant to the outcome, but it is over-discounted by, by the, the the weight of numbers. So we've uh, we've dived hard into the, uh, the 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 way in which you might find an edge in, in gambling. When you take a step back and think about how you first got interested in gambling, what role did going along to uh, greyhound races with your da dad playing this and, and indeed your well, dad's you know, my working my, at point. My, my, I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad. My parents were separated but extremely working class and, and yeah, dad was engaged in working class activities and greyhound training is certainly, you know, almost an archetype of such behaviours and he, um, you know, he enjoyed some success that probably... At the time, I believed he made money out of it, but now, in retrospect, I know that that is a is very low probability. 
he didn't really bet much. And if he did bet, it'd be a dollar or two dollars. But he liked to train greyhounds. A lot of his mates trained greyhounds. The greyhound racing here was on Saturday night. I used to do a paper run and then I'd get on the bus and go and meet Dad at the dogs. And it was, you know, a bonding session. As I say, I didn't see much. so And I enjoyed it. I can't say that I extracted much principle from the dogs at the time that I thought, you know, simple things like adding up the bookmaker's odds that can tell you how big a disadvantage you're going to have at random if you bet. Those things didn't occur to me, even though I was very interested in numbers. But that experience started to, to occur to me when I met people at uni and, and read books the university in Hobart, where we are and where I live, is just across the road from the casino. It does seem to have created quite a lot of serious gamblers. People wander across the road. I guess I was one of those, but I'd already been given some info that it could be beaten by a couple of guys doing physics, and I vaguely knew this guy, Jelko, from playing table tennis. Questions were asked and, you know... I had something of a computer science background and something of a maths background, so no particularly deep skill at either, but being the Swiss Army knife made me a useful commodity to these guys that are interested in gambling. They asked me some questions, I got them wrong. I got like, I got a feature of one wrong, and I realised shortly after that I that I'd got it wrong, and that made me do some put in some serious time. And I went back to Jelko and I said, oh, look, well, you know, I got this wrong, he said, you should do it. And he said, yeah, I know, I was just testing you. <laughs> <laughs> which really pissed me off, as you can imagine. So <laughs> so now I've got ego in it and it was that ego in it that got me interested and also his compelling personality. But that was about casino gaming, but it made me think about the possibility of extracting an edge at horse racing. One of our blackjack colleagues had also looked at horse and greyhound racing and, you know, and essentially thought that maybe there's a difference in the embedded wisdom of bookmakers compared to the tote, particularly in small pools. It was a valid observation. That comprises what stock market traders call a technical model, right? And there are other stock market traders that have fundamental models that essentially look at the features of the market like the, under, the underlying value of shares. Mm. But you, often, you don't often see in the published literature people using both fundamental and technical models. Why that is is beyond me, we do. And when I put the technical features with the fundamental features together is basically... So when, when I just didn't just look at the, the trend of the money, the public, I also looked at the reality of the underlying factors. I found that they were both influential in forecasts and the outcome. You don't need to forecast the outcome. A lot of people aren't aware of this. What you need to do is simply get odds that are better than the public odds. And I use a die analogy quite often. If you roll a die, it doesn't matter what number you bet on. If you get 10 to 1, it's a fair die, you'll make money. If you get 4 to 1, you won't make money. Every economist knows that and the one sitting opposite me in the microphone definitely knows that. But it isn't, it isn't universally known and it probably should be. It's basically turning what a business transaction where you enter a business transaction, you're buying a car because you might think that the car plus its 
plus the status embedded in buying the car is worth more than the cost of the car, all we're doing is reducing a series to a single transaction. So let's uh, let's go to that edge that you were uh, you, you had in your early gambling. Uh, I understand that uh, when you're walking into rest point in those early days, you're basically playing blackjack. Uh, what does a a good card counting system like Wonging give you? What's a, what sort of percentage oh. edge are you getting, and and what does that mean? You've got a stake in order to. So Wonging only bets when you've got an advantage. Typically, your edge goes up by about half a percent for each true count of one, and a true count is basically a measure of the numbers of the number of ten and aces above the random number of ten and aces remaining in, in in the pack and usually it's multiple decks of cards. So an edge of one percent might happen one hand in five, an edge of two percent one hand in twenty five. So typically card counting alone, you win about one and a quarter, one and a half percent on turnover. Per hour. No, per hand. per hand. So if you bet a dollar, you make a cent. Typically, in a reasonably fast game, and you do seek those out, you make about one top bet an hour. So if your top bet's $100, you make about $100 an hour. And if you introduce a few other features like shuffle tracking or if you find games that you know they, they make other errors or have particularly good rules, mm. you can sometimes make up to two top bets an hour, so betting $100. And the, the top bet is basically, well, you need about 300, arguably 300 top bets an hour. So you might need a twenty or $30,000 bankroll to bet $100. So playing $100 an hour, assuming you can play 30 hours a week, you can, make in ten, you can double your bankroll in 10 weeks. That's, a, that's pretty attractive. There aren't many... You know, so you can turn a thousand dollars into two thousand, and then into four thousand, and eight thousand. Assuming you're not living off it, but I mainly was, which is a big mistake. Which is why Jocko <laughs> had a bankroll and I didn't. But um, but from growth of small capital, I still know of no more reliable way of turning a thousand dollars into ten thousand. Or these days, you know, it might be five thousand into fifty because you know the, the value of the capital, the value of the money has been diluted. So blackjack's the, the early start and then one of your early... Uh, well, it wasn't meant to be. We thought it was our career but what happens is... Well, well, didn't think it was our career but we thought it was going to make us rich. And it has made people rich but what happens is casinos aren't great admirers of winners. They, you know, they tend to have an attitude which goes something like losers only welcome. So what you've got to try to do is convince them that you have the characteristics that losing players have. So, for example, if you're betting hundreds of dollars or, or as it became, tens of thousands of dollars, you got to look like someone that can afford $10,000 and I categorically didn't. So, you know, a Rolex might be a good start and a backstory, you know, making them believe, for example, that you're a drug dealer works very well for young people because why else would, you know, poorly dressed young people have money? The idea is not to be poorly dressed, it's to be suave. And typically other people than me could carry it off better. We eventually started using strategies 
and it is an arms race. There are, I haven't played for years and I know there are strategies out there that are a lot better than any we employed, both on the casino side and on our side. We um, played a thing called Big Player, Gorilla Big Player and Big Player, where you might swamp all the tables in a casino with a card counter that's just flat betting, that's betting, say, $100. And this might happen in a Vegas casino when there's a big boxing match on, so there are lots of people betting a lot of money. So on a table with a 10,000 maximum, you'd have someone on every table giving signals to someone that's just walking around betting the maximum. Presumably they've had a few drinks, either they've had a few drinks or they're a good actor and can pretend they've had a few drinks. And they're swilling a drink and they've got an attractive lady and it always has to be a man because women don't behave this way and and this person has to blend in. So they're walking around big noting themselves, showing off, betting 10,000. It appears to be a random process, but they're getting signals from people. So there's no growth in the bets, which is a good, a big indicator of card counters. If you bet bigger towards the end of the shoe, then the consumer can do some quick analysis. From They can do it live or they can do it from the, the movies that they're making. And quickly they'll find a correlation in the outcomes or in the, the distribution of cards that remain. So they'll catch you, but they won't if you... I mean, I'm sure casinos have become aware of these these tactics, but they were not aware of them <laughs> 30 years ago. And you know, they introduced things like shuffling machines that take eight, that you feed the cards straight back in after you've dealt them. So the memory characteristic of blackjack, where cards that are out can't be redealt, is eliminated, right? And I don't know how, but I do know that there's a team of South African gamblers that have figured out figured out a way of beating the shuffling machines. You know, these are interesting things that... And whatever they do to fix the, the floor, someone will find a floor in because, you know, it is not pure mathematics. And pure mathematicians... No, no, I don't mean pure. I mean mm. mathematicians, statisticians, economists make terrible gamblers because they expect the features in a casino to reflect the real world and they don't. It's typically... Uh, we've successfully played roulette because, as implemented, it's a random game. No, no, sorry, as, as, as described, the theory of roulette is that it's random. Mm. But it, doesn't, it isn't often characterised in casinos in ways that are perfectly random. Well, you have your uh, uh, story of having found the uh, flawed roulette wheel, right? So we've found lots of flaws in lots of roulette wheels. But the one I've... I don't know if I've written about it or maybe I'll tell Red, red 27, I Yeah, so 20, 27 red is a flaw on, as far as I know, every Amer- American bingo parlour wheel in the world, which means the casinos don't often put them out. But every now and again, for some reason, they make a few, you know, a few years ago, some, some appeared in Puerto Rico. But, you know, I... So My the ball's about twenty percent more likely to land on on twenty-seven red. Is that right? I mean, it's not. A, it's not. I'm trying, a big, I'm trying to characterise it though. It was between not a big edge. Uh, well, twenty between a twenty and thirty percent advantage is a massive edge. So, think about it in terms of you betting on that number straight out. You can bet, say, a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. You get up to one hundred and sixty spins an hour. So, if you that's thirty-two thousand turnover. You know. At uh, 20%, you're making $6,000 an hour. You can also bet the splits, which halves your, ex- halves your edge. 
and you can bet the col- uh, not the columns, the corners and stuff. Anyway, in that scenario, which is exactly the scenario we found ourselves, we can make about fifteen thousand bucks an hour, and we and we did. But people have beaten roulette in in a predictive way where they use a combination of technology and strategy mm. to forecast what numbers are going to come up to get much greater than 50 and often greater than 100% edges and and could bet, you know, this, this happened, for example, at the Ritz in London and they won £1.3 million in two nights. And then... Uh, the casino refused to pay them. They just <laughs> understandably protested. It was taken to court and the, the discriminating factor was found to be whether they influenced the game in any way or not. And they did not, so their money was given to them. But um, use, using... A technique called edge sorting. It is very rare for a deck of cards to be perfectly printed on the back. You know, you've got a diamond pattern. Where that cuts, often you've got a diamond pattern, where that is cut by the edge of the card can sometimes be read. It's sometimes asymmetric. And very smart, I would assume she's very smart, I haven't met her, but her strategy was incredible. She was claiming to be superstitious in telling the dealer to rotate cards in certain directions depending on the outcome. But what she was doing was having aces rotated one way so that the next shoe she could read the back of the card until it was an ace, right? That gives you a 50% edge blackjack. She won seven million pound, or was it seven million US dollars? It was seven million US dollars. And they didn't pay her. Again, it was contested. And... um, the casino was able to keep their money because, again, the discriminating factor was whether you influenced the game and the court ruled that she did. I think she was quite quite hard done by because a lot of Asian players do a lot of things like that. So I think the casino weaseled out on a loophole. But anyway, so these are the sort of things that happen that enable you to beat gambling games and they're not features that statisticians would typically deduce from an analysis of the game. So just before we leave gambling, I am interested in in what uh, uh, someone who is not betting billions a year can learn from how you think about risk. Uh, one of the things you, you note in, in, in your book, A Bona Fact, is uh, that you should employ a barbell strategy. You should never bet so much as to, as to risk financial ruin. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I think there's only one characteristic of successful investors that they all share. When we do analysis, when we see a magazine interview, they interview some ultra-successful Bill Gates type and they only look at the output cohort. They don't look at the input cohort. And I always use tennis as an example. There is no point in interviewing Roger Federer because all of the things he's done to make him good, the people that didn't become good also did. The discriminating fact... It might seem incredible, but most of the, most of his edge was, was a, a lucky retrospective outcome. He was slightly better than everyone else. And there's a feedback loop and he got better and better. So getting back to your 
question and, and looking at barbell strategies as Talon calls them and I, I call them beer glass strategies. The Because a beer glass is more fun than a barbell, right? Well, because and also it has it, – barbells are the same at each end. The first thing that successful investors do that is a discriminating factor based on it being different from inputs, and I didn't do this, is – Survival. I said before that you divide your – you need 300 top bets when you're playing blackjack. That's because it reduces the risk of ruin. I didn't also say that when you've lost half your capital due to a negative fluctuation, assuming you've got an edge, and that will happen, you've got to bet half the size because the biggest thing that can happen to you is destruction. The first thing you've got to avoid – is ruin, and that applies to anything you do. Like, and gen generically, there are people that are arguing. A lot of people are arguing. Most scientists, most people with some expertise, believe that global warming is real. It is absolutely irrelevant in terms of our response to it, whether it's 99.9 percent, 50 percent, or 10 percent likely. We should still intervene, because. The cost is too great to contemplate. The fear of ruin, the 40-degree global warming will require trillions of dollars a year to be spent at a later date. It's easy to spend billions now, right, than trillions later. So risk of ruin, existential behaviour is fundamental to any activity and, um, you know, I find base jumping, for example, untenable in terms of it maybe generating 50% more thrill than parachuting but tens of thousands of times more risk, you know. And also there's this other characteristic of some of these activities, they are addictive. So you keep doing them until they kill you, even even if they're low mm. risk. Mm. So you like if you shoot up heroin once, you're going to have a good time, and it's not it's, there's no risk to you at all. That isn't the nature of the engagement. It's about eight percent likely to change your behaviour in the future, in a dramatically negative way that has a, a high risk of ruin. If you bet on the horse races, there's probably about one chance in five thousand that it'll destroy your life because you'll become addicted. But if you the first time you bet on a poker machine, there's about a 5% chance that it's going to destroy your life. What's the worst decision I ever made? It was that first bet that I placed. It made me very, very rich, but there was about one chance in 100 million of that happening, but there was one chance in 20 of me becoming an addicted gambler and ending up possibly with other addictive characteristics. So... In part answer to your question, if you've never placed a bet, the best decision you can make is never to place a bet, right? If you're ever going to place a bet, don't do it on a poker machine because the addiction by design, clever bastards that built them are building feedback mechanisms and all sorts of other complications that I don't know about because they've hired the smartest people in the world and they pay them a offensive amount of money and they've got good outcomes to get the highest addiction rate straight up and, you know, and to make it very difficult to beat that addiction if it arises. So 5%. Fear of risk of ruin, very high. Don't take that initial bet. 
And if you are engaged in social gambling on an activity like horse racing or playing roulette, don't cross over into the ones that are a lot more addictive, right? So, um, but in terms of non-gambling outcomes, there are a lot of people, including me, that made really bad business decisions early on and got lucky. So people like you, Andrew, talk to them. But their skill was simply... Maybe maybe they've got an edge now because they had the chance to acquire it, but that those initial early tosses of the coin, they often took risks that were untenable. I did. I overestimated my edge and there was about a 20% chance that my horse race gambling resulted in a successful outcome. That's sure. that's not a good, good position to be in. Now, my contention would be that there are a lot of other people like me that were just as talented at gambling and figured out the same strategies as me and made exactly the same mistakes as me, but they got wiped out and I didn't. And then, of course, once I'm in the market, and I'm in most of the markets, people like me that are successful then make the characteristics of the market more untenable and more deceptive so that newcomers come in, they think they've got an edge and they're less likely to have an edge, and indeed they're less likely to be big, too big with the edge that they have, so they're more likely to blow up. So 30 years ago you can be me, but now you can't because you'll come in and you'll find a way of getting an edge, you'll overestimate your edge, you'll bet too big or you'll have deceived yourself about whether you've got an edge in the first place and you'll blow it up. So don't gamble. In terms of business decisions, do lots of things, repeated outcomes, open restaurants with part of your capital, don't blow it up at once and seek asymmetric upside. Seek Uber, at least for humans on low incomes, is the, much better than a, than a government unemployment policy because it allows you to do something that will keep you alive while you take risks with part of your capital and it enables you to have an income. Mona, one of the best features of Mona that I don't often see in the literature is that we employ about 150 people with fine arts degrees that would otherwise not be doing anything in fine arts because they'd have to get a job because you can't make a living in fine arts unless you pull off a million to one shot and become Damien Hurst. What's happening is these people are working one or two days, three days a week at Mona, they're and then in their downtime, they're making stuff. And some of that stuff's really great. And every now and again, the forces of talent and chance will, in unison, prof propel them to a successful career. But in the meantime, they can do their creative endeavours, their artisanal endeavours, the things that define them as a human being, without risk of ruin, right? And also it keeps people in Tasmania that otherwise would not be. So it keeps artisanship and talent and endeavour and creativity and honour, particularly honour, in the community because people that make things necessarily have honour. They have honour because it's built into us biologically to endeavour, to strive. But normally we have communities that enable us to take risk. Those features of communities have been extracted and I believe that those features are the litmus test of equality of a... If you can take risk in such a way that if that risk would in, were it to succeed would benefit the community, then that is a marker of a, of 
a well-measured community. The US produces a great deal of the world's endeavour and a great deal of its innovation, but the downside cost is too great because those that attempt to innovate and fail aren't protected. There's no safety net and therefore the Trapeze Act will be a lot less. So in the, uh, the origin story of Mona, I understand, goes back to the early 1990s when you're in uh, South Africa trying to work out how to uh, get, around, get, get uh, gambling winnings out of the country and uh, so, go for the strategy of, uh, of exporting a piece, of, uh, a piece of antiquities, right? So the origin story of everything has, is multiple path, except when there's no risk, right? So what we're talking about in an origin story is an unlikely outcome that had a lot of risks of ruin. One place that, we, that I can pinpoint easily and have done and therefore it's available in the literature is my mate and I were gambling in South Africa. He was playing with my money. He won what I now think is $18,000, but at times I've reported it as $20,000. <coughs> but I think I did the translation at the rand at the wrong time. But anyway, having... Having reasserted, I believe it was $18,000, I had walked past a gallery in Seattle, a suburb of Johannesburg, and I'd seen this, um, this Nigerian palace door made by an artist that I'd never heard of, but it turns out he's, he's quite well known. His name is Aragon. It's made about a, then about 100 years ago, now about 130. I liked the look of it. I thought it was pretty cute. And... Um, when Patrick tries to leave with the money, he can't. He rings me up and he says, they won't let me take out more money than I, than I brought in. And I say, ask him if he can take art out. And he turns around and he says, sure, they say that's okay. Rather weird. But anyway, so I either rang up the gallery or I went there. I think I rang up the gallery and I said, how much is that work? And they said, ah, US dollars. That's what's going on here. They said, 22,000 US dollars. And I... And that might be the discrepancy between the 18 and the 20. I said, will you take 18,000 US dollars? And they said, yes. And I became an art collector. Right. Another outcome of this was it turned out that this palace door was a very important panel of a double door, the other half of which is in the British Museum collection. So the first work of art I bought turned out to be worth a lot more than I paid for it. And that sort of thing, that sort of statistical, non-statistical outcome convinces you you know what you're doing, you know. So now I think I know about art, so I'm buying art, right? So then Roman coins, uh, Egyptian Actually, Actually, I had bought, I had purchased coins beforehand. I'd bought them but not, not at any level. But then I got serious. Yeah. Coins, so Egyptian artefacts... So then you, uh, in 2001, you opened the Marilla Museum of Antiquities and it's a raging success, right? No, it was a raging failure. So it was, um, you know, about 10,000 people. Well, it was, it was part of a winery and I never really intended anyone to visit it. About 10,000 people, therefore, you know, a few hundred people a day visited. A lot of them liked that. We did no publicity at all and they were turning up for a winery. One of the things that makes people have a valid experience is to exceed their expectation. And because they had no expectation at all, it wasn't hard to exceed it. That becomes harder as Mona, this successor to the Marilla Museum of Antiquities, becomes more successful 
people are aware of it and have an expectation. But that wasn't the case. So, but anyway, I, having built this thing that no one came to, I declared it a raging success and moved on. But um, the most interesting characteristic of that in terms of what happened later was that it looked like every museum in the world. I had no interest in the way museums were created, no museological background. The people I hired to do stuff for me also had no museum background. And yet I built a museum that looked like everything else. And that was interesting to me. How much did Mona's success depend on having tried something that, that in your view, wasn't a success? I wouldn't have even contemplated doing it again. So I started thinking about... uh, As I say, it did, for those that came, exceed their expectations. And I enjoyed it personally. And I only built it because I realised that it was going to cost not much more to open my collection to the public than it was to appropriately warehouse it, to build a mm. climate-controlled endeavour, control the humidity. So there wasn't, there wasn't a big reason not to open it to the public. So although it was, it was certainly not a commercial success and it didn't attract a lot of visitors, the most interesting thing about it to me was that it looked like every other museum and I didn't intend it to. So I started doing some thinking about why museums look like they do. There's a museum theory called the white cube and it says that we try to present art in a neutral matrix so that it's most objectively presented to the viewer. After about five minutes, I decided that that was nonsense. You went for the nightclub aesthetic instead? No, no, I decided it wasn't working, that, that there's a huge amount of subjectivity in the engagement of art. In fact, if you go and see the same work of art twice, you won't have the same experience. Your mood changes. And also the artist didn't create it in this environment. Mm. You've already created an alien environment for the art by putting it in a museum. Very little art was ever intended to be in a a museum. But certainly none of mine was because it was antiquities. And I just broke the golden wall. I moved closer to the microphone. (laughs) As I I got excited, I won't make that mistake again. So the reason museums are white is because they have to put interpretive material on the wall. And the easiest material to read is black text on a white background. And to make that work in the environment, that drives uh, a white wall. How important was... And that white wall, I wanted to get rid of. So I started... I came up with the idea of not having any interpretive material and I developed a device called the O that shows you around the museum and knows where you are and that freed up the design and that meant I could mess with... The lighting, for example. I could could only light the art, which creates a very interesting atmosphere. You have to to wall wash, you have to light the whole wall if people are going to read the interpretive material. So anyway, I could have written a book called uh, Creative Aesthetics in 21st Century Museology, but I didn't. I, I built the bloody thing instead. But there's many, so there's many things that uh, that strike you when you're when you're in Mona. One is the the absolute lack of pretension, uh, and and that uh, that that sense that uh, I'm engaging with artworks uh, through the lens of somebody who takes a kind of regular every, every person kind of look, look at. Can the I can I comment on that because that's very uh, important. Sure. So um, state museums are essentially temples to the value of the state. They're not about you making your own call. They're enhancing the status of the state 
by telling you what good is. And they do it in a very specific way. You walk upstairs, you walk through grand portals, you're made to feel small in the presence of greatness, right? It is autocratic rather than democratic. My museum, a lot of it's contemporary art, there is no way I can tell whether anything that I've got will be interesting to anyone in 50 years except for the antiquities, except for the things that have history. You can pretty well tell if you've got no other data about something that it'll survive into the future as long as it's already survived. So when a storm hits the Great Pyramids, they don't fall down because many storms have hit them in the past. You can expect them, having survived a few thousand years, to survive a few thousand more. A house that's just been built next to the pyramids when a horse hits, when a storm hits, is much more likely to fall down. Fall down. So the characteristics of my art, the new stuff, I've got no idea if it's, it has value. Because of my statistics background, I can do the analysis and say this is most likely to be worthless and there might be a few of these objects that become valuable. I can't predict which one they are. Since I have no idea which, whether anything I'm showing myself is good, it's very hard for me to assert a state position and try to indoctrinate you into my belief system. And in fact, I believe that wisdom emerges through the consistent application of doubt from multiple individuals. Everyone has a market theory, they're almost always wrong. The scientific method, which is essentially the creative application of doubt, generates a consensus, the reality of the slaughter of the meat, because we don't have to, we don't have to engage it there, right? In the same way that we're likely Another thing messing that, uh, up the atmosphere. In being in if we had to carry around our little bit of atmosphere and watch it get polluted uh, by sex, our activities, death, we would probably behave uh, a bit differently uh, than what we do. I call this compartmentalisation. Do, do, right. do you have any, to, any And I'm rallying against compartmentalisation. Firstly, cultural expression, well, typically the cultural and often the biological expression of taboo is a way to enable us to avoid, the con to avoid the knowledge of the consequences of our action. So it looks like I'm railing against taboo, but most taboos make perfect sense. You know, not eating shit makes sense. Shit smells bad because it has scatol in it, and it has scatol in it because tryptophan, one of the amino acids, decomposes to scatol. Now, we don't want to eat our own shit because, or, and others because it's more likely to cause digestive upset. Right? You put it in a water supply and you eat it and occasionally it happens. You get a whole range of diseases. So rather than having us make a choice, biology as embedded by dint of sieving the failures that died, to make us have an aversion to shit. It's picked a compound that is in shit that is in very little else, scatol, but scatol itself is not dangerous. Actually, it can be in very, it, it can be in very large doses, but we have also have scatol in ice cream for flavouring. So, but it's just a biological marker that tells us to be disgusted. The taboo makes perfect sense. It, there are similar compounds in earwax, right, but not the same ones. So in general, in general, there's a group of compounds called indoles that we respond to. So most taboos make perfect sense. I'm having a go at the taboos for which there is differential uptake 
But rational behaviour is that behaviour, as we talked about before, not that generates correct information, not that generates fact. It's that which keeps us alive. It's that which keeps us in the gene pool. You and I are probably committed rationalists. I'm an atheist. I believe you're an atheist too. You probably don't want to talk about that, but I may be wrong as well. And anyway, you're not being interviewed. The... Now, I think that there are good reasons that atheism is the most likely feature of our universe. That What I mean is that the lack of a deity or the lack of hundreds of thousands of deities is a feature of our universe. But belief, for example, in Islam, if either parent is Islamic, then the children are necessarily Islamic and they have to con parents have to convert. The feature of belief in Islam is propagation, right? There are, there are other religions like the Shakers that, and I'm just, I'm onto something here that has to go beyond this, that where a feature was that they didn't breed and they died out, right? Rationalists tend to have less children than believers, right? As far as biology goes, rationalism is a flawed philosophy because it will result in a decreasing population compared to those that believe. And I don't know exactly where I'm going in terms of the question with this. Well, let me, ta let me take it in a, uh, in a particular direction, which is that um, I'm struck in your book by the generosity that you show towards uh, those who you intellectually drew on from a, str a strong faith tradition. Uh, Gregor Mendel, the, uh, the, the geneticist, uh, uh, Thomas Bayes, the father of uh, Bayes, Bayes' theorem that well, you well, use extensively. I mean, Bayes made me all my money. It'd be hard not to be a fan. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I, I the, the best one, notice with you is... is the, the best one is, you, you know, Georges Lamarck. The Vatican Observatory was mainly established to... to uh, get the date of Easter right and a bunch of other lunar calendar feasts, right? But Georges Lamarck is the guy that postulated the Big Bang. A Catholic priest at the Catholic you know, observatory in the Vatican came up with this big idea, right? How cool is that? Charles Darwin was going to be a, you know, a, a Protestant priest. Now... There are a lot of smarter people than Charles Darwin, but there isn't anyone with more intellectual integrity because he keep, completely undermined his own belief with his own discoveries, right? Now, I would not have the rigour to do that. I'm in a position where I don't have to, but if a big idea ever thrusts itself in my face, I won't present it in a well-argued way so that it can either be shot down. I'll avoid it because I won't even know. Like, that... Mendel, 30 years before three people in the same year discovered his idea, had the rigour to present it, even though it took him down a path which wasn't great for his belief system. Right? A feature of priests is, you know, apart from a few confessions and, and you know, maybe mass on a, on a couple of days a week, they get a lot of time to meddle. They're messing around. They've got time. They've got time. They're... They map back into what I said before. The they've got the safety net, so they've got the capacity to innovate, right? 
Catholicism has broadly for the, not for the devotees, but for the the, the direct beneficiaries, those that believe in some such way that causes them to go down to a, a clerical path, they have a lot of free time and the time to meddle and the time to think. And they're also well-trained intellectually, particularly the Franciscans. You know, They've got, got a built-in beer glass in your analogy. They've got it. They've got the end of the beer glass that throths and bubbles. <laughs> So uh, let me throw, throw a few uh, final questions at you, David. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Yeah, I, I, I... Well, I can give advice because I have a background in a specific way. And there are, there are two ways this question can be phrased. One is if I know the outcome is going to be roughly what it is. In other words, whether the flow path can be... But... If it's my teenage self in the multiverse and the outcome is unspecified, I would definitely say don't gamble. And the other thing I'd say is don't try to be good at table tennis because the things that you do that you think you're good at, you're not good at and they're going to mess up your life. Do something I would seek now if I... In, a, in other words, I would advise myself to seek. But if I was a 10-year-old with a similar set of talents... I would have done what I should have done, except that I got distracted, which is be very interested in what I was very interested in and the two things that me as a you know, slightly spectrum weirdo were astronomy and computers, right? Astronomy would have been immensely satisfying and I probably could have made a living, but I would have been good and that's... But computing, it was already obvious, except that I deviated from the path, that I was going to get a good job. Everyone's going to get a good job if you're, you know, if you... The idea is all you need to do is be mediocre. You don't need to be fabulous. Tennis, you have to be fabulous. You know, a lot of endeavours, you look like you have to be fabulous, but all you had to be was fabulously lucky. The sieve was luck rather than talent, right? Does that inform how you parent as the, the father of yes. three, three children? Yes, and don't, and don't do as I do. And, you know, I'm very fortunate that my luck was not just luck, but it was meta luck because it gave me a set of analytical tools that can give me the, the, the background knowledge of how important luck is and how unrepresented it is in our analyses of, of what success is, right? Societies shouldn't need luck. We shouldn't need... Because we should design our activities... The larger the, the, the larger the population size, the less risk there should be. Global warming is a really bad idea. And to get that... We have built into our biology an in-group, out-group phenomenon. You know, we tend to respond well to our family and then more well to our the community that we're embedded in, the religion that we believe, the colour of our skin, and we have to fight to overcome these beliefs. You know, um, Martin Luther King was completely wrong when he said racism is something that has to be taught. And getting those things wrong messes up our chances of fixing them. Right? So, and that was a bit of an aside that it, probably, the, probably I just, probably just blew my chance of anyone ever listening to me again. But um, the things that bubble up from community level tend to be the things that we are most committed to that affect the most viable changes. But from, there should be risk taken at the individual level, but we can minimise that with good strategies. And then they bubble up to family and to local and then 
at each level, the, the sum of all the statistical risks shouldn't be biased so that the risk is reduced. Because if biased risk, as it bubbles up to larger populations, is still the same, but, but risk around uh, that's scattered around a distribution isn't the same. So... Which is the difference between uh, gambling and uh, betting, uh, investing in the stock market, right? Well, the, uncorrelated the, risks versus correlated risks. Absolutely, the, the the stock market is a crazy way to make a living, even if you've got a winning strategy, because let's say you know you had an edge over the market from 1929, for example, to 1956, the market declined. Right? It doesn't matter if you had an edge. Now there's a lot of billionaires in the stock market, but the vast majority of them just participated in, in you know, in Shakespeare's there's a, There is a Tide in the Affairs of Men when it's taken at the flood leads on to fortune. It went up for everyone. So they think they know what they're doing, but it could just as easily have gone down, and it will. There will be black swans. There will be grey swans. There will be... And when it goes down, it goes down like, like it did in 2008, like it did in 1987. It goes down in a dramatic way. And whole populations get correlated out of the market. If you... You know, that we need those that most benefit from the market to have risk in it so that they don't blow it up, you know, and those are hedge fund managers that have invested in, for example, in their own hedge funds. Don't ask what the strategy is, ask what the portfolio is. And if the guy giving you advice isn't in the same portfolio, whether it's social, if he's telling you to go, go after redheads and he's not married to a redhead, don't take his advice, right? What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, God. Uh, Vegetarian? I used to believe I knew what I was doing. Like, now I believe... Like, I'm here talking to you not because I think that everything I'm saying is likely to be right. I'm here because, for one thing, I've been lucky enough so that you've asked me to talk to you and, you know, you're charming, so I said yes, but... And also you... You do this very clever thing where you use um, hyperbolic discounting. You ask for people to do things. If you ask people to do something tomorrow, they'll <laughs> say no. But you know full well that if you ask them to do it months out, they'll say yes. But anyway, I'm here talking to you. It, I have the great good fortune to be able to have my voice heard, but I don't think it should be heard as a gospel in any sense. It's just a little bub bubble in the foment of... of Froth of conversation. It's a little. I have a few little ideas, and they need to be tested by the the wisdom of the crowd. They need to be tested by the doubt of the scientific method. But I used to believe that I had insights. I used to believe that uh, left, for example, was better than right. I used to believe that the features of left that aren't necessarily congruent with each other, for example a typical support of, uh, of uh, the mother's right to choose and the right to abortion and uh, the right to choose the, your, your termination if, you know, if the right of euthanasia were, were congruent with each other because they were aligned with the left. Now I believe that they should be explored as entities in and of themselves. So I used to subscribe to the idea, find someone that 
believes what you do but knows a bit more and then you don't have to think as much about the political sphere and you can get on with your life. Now, I just don't think that at all. I think everyone... No, I don't mean that at all. I mean, for me, it is a particular necessity if I want to live a whole life, a life with some integrity, to analyse the features of each individual belief system and decorrelate them as much as I can. Now, I know you're aligned with the left. I don't know what you believe about... I would say that you're probably a, a moderate left, but there are some things where I'm radically left. In to, in, mm, mm. And there are some fiscal, like I would say, you know, there are huge problems with our tax situation because the only way of destroying inequity is through destroying wealth, right? And we reposition the, the, the tax burden on income in, in non-progressive ways when it should be, you know, I, I think estate tax is an obvious way of repositioning and, you know, uh, I believe in high tax regimes, but I, um, I believe in asymmetric upside. So endeavours that work need not to be scaled out of out of existence, like because otherwise the upside isn't asymmetric mm. and mm. the reason to engage in it is, isn't mm. there. Mm. So I think it's possible to structure a tax system. Like capital gains tax makes no sense at all to me because the wealthy don't, don't need to consume. You, I make more money than you probably and, the, and even, the, you know, I tend... Like... The tax on consumption should be repositioned to luxury. You know, there might be administrative problems with that, but I don't care. That's... <laughs> when are you most happy? Uh, well, I'm about to be very happy. My wife's... After I leave you, I'm going straight to Government House. My wife's about to become an Australian citizen. She's American. She'll soon be Australian. Congratulations. Well, and well, not, and uh, that'll make me very happy because it makes her very happy. So we share a sort of a rationalist view of the world, but she's also a magical thinker because she thinks it creates beauty. I am most happy when someone exposes to me beauty that my worldview could not hitherto encompass. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Is your vegetarianism uh, uh, partly to do with health or is that entirely an ethical decision? Entirely an ethical decision. I suspect that if I ate fish, I'd be more healthy. But compared to the overall domain of, of outcomes, you know, I'm okay because uh, vegetarian is better than eating a lot of meat. But probably eating a little bit of meat is ideal. In fact, probably eating a little bit of everything. Like our diet is, you know, is very focused on a few things and eating a lot more things might be better. So in our ancestral environment we certainly did and there's no reason to think that apart from a few modifications for things like wheat and milk that we've changed dramatically. Uh, but my mental health, I, I have a history of, in my family of mental illness. It's, um, it's something I have to be aware of. I 
tend to find it very easy to pursue rational, materialist disciplines. And I tend to find that when I'm able to make my ingrained beliefs, the things that make me feel like I'm a human being, consistent with the things that I think are ethical, then I'm at my best. In general, I would say as as a rule, we are most likely to behave in a way that's congruent with our ethics when we look inside ourselves. So we can... Consciousness is, to me, an error-checking software. We don't need it to operate. We can drive home without it. Most of our decisions are made without it, and when we do tests, we find that we might have the capacity to intervene, so we might have free won't, but we don't really have free will. What it seems to be is what Socrates termed as a... what He put it, a life unexamined is not worth living. I think this looking inside yourself... And then having that become a mechanism that drives your behaviour is what integrity fundamentally is and that gives you health. And, you know, there's, there's a notion that... And it's hard to do, but if you can find it in yourself to realise that most other people, however disparate from their beliefs probably are engaging in them with as much integrity as you are with yours, even though they're completely in conflict. It is quite likely, although I don't believe that Donald Trump, the outcomes that he's likely to generate are positive or universally positive, it is quite possible, quite likely in my opinion, that he is behaving consistently with his belief system and he believes what he's doing is right for the world and in particular for America. So I think it's very hard but worthy to try to realise that those whose beliefs are totally anathema to you, to you still are behaving in a way that's totally congruent with what they believe. You know, there's, they are not inherently evil and I'm not sure that evil is inherently a real thing. Hitler was trying to create a utopia for those that shared the characteristics that he was bound to, right? Individuals trying to create utopias tend to produce very bad outcomes. Communities trying to create utopias tend to produce bad but not as bad outcomes because, because individuals assert their biases more than groups do. But in general, utopian visions need to be squashed, but they need to be squashed by people that understand that those that are compelled by them believe in them. Which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? My experience of gambling taught me to understand that the wealth and prestige that I grew to possess had very little to do with my talent, right? So I didn't gain wisdom by standing on the shoulders of giants. I gained wisdom by surfing the crowd. And that 
has been a tool that I've been able to use to analyse, and I'm certainly not suggesting that I'm ethical, but skinning the game is both a hugely positive thing when it drives behaviour that's good for, for a community, but it's very, very bad when it drives your behaviour in the Donald Trumpian sense. It gives you the opportunity to enjoy prestigious... Out, enjoy outcomes that satisfy you or that satisfy a need that aren't compelled by others. That's why we have laws against insider trading, right? But we also make ethical decisions like that. But gambling has given me the tool to mm. at least process when I'm doing it and occasionally perhaps redirect my behaviours, occasionally, you know, occasionally make better decisions. What a fascinating uh, conclusion, wrapping up uh, where we started. Uh, David Walsh, uh, professional gambler, art collector, polymath. Thanks for speaking on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.